Now, no condemnation awaiting for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving Spirit, and this power is mine through Jesus Christ, has freed me from the vicious circle of sin and death. We aren't saved from sin's grasp by knowing the commandments of God, because we can't and don't keep them. But God put them into effect, but put into effect a different plan to save us. He sent his own son in a human body like ours, except that ours are sinful and destroyed sin's control over us by giving himself as a sacrifice for our sins. So now we can obey God's laws if we follow after the Holy Spirit and no longer obey the old evil nature within us. Those who let themselves be controlled by their lower natures live only to please themselves. But those who follow after the Holy Spirit find themselves doing those things that please God. Following after the Holy Spirit leads to life and peace, but following after the old nature leads to death. Because the old sinful nature within us is against God, it never did obey God's laws and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their old sinful selves, bent on following their old evil desires, can never please God. But you are not like that. You are controlled by your new nature. If you have the Spirit of God living in you, and remember that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ living in him is not a Christian at all. Yet even though Christ lives within you, your body will die because of sin. But your spirit will live, for Christ has pardoned it. And if the Spirit of God who raised up Jesus from the dead lives in you, he will make your dying bodies live again after you die, by means of this same Holy Spirit living within you. So, dear brothers, you have no obligation whatever to your old sinful nature to do what it begs you to do. For if you keep on following it, you are lost and will perish. And if through the power of the Holy Spirit you crush it and its evil deeds, you shall live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And we should not be like cringing, fearful slaves but we should behave like God's very own children adopted into the bosom of his family and calling to him, Father, Father. For his Holy Spirit speaks to us deep in our hearts and tells us that we really are God's children. And since we are his children, we will share in his treasures. For all God gives to his son, Jesus Christ, is now ours too. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids are invited to Kids Church with Kelly today.
It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Stand firm and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is our, um, I have it written out here. Fourth sermon, I believe, in the in this sort of Easter season sermon series that we do that, that is meant for the upbuilding of the church, the upbuilding of us together. And so this is what we do every Easter season. Um, but the first one was, a, was an overview that I think what I was trying to say, <laughs> in hindsight, um, was this know your enemy sort of mindset. That, that if the world, and, and going back to moralistic therapeutic deism, which we talked about uh, several times in the sermon series, which is that which what most people believe. Um, they found out that young people actually don't hate Christians. They just think faith is kind of benign and boring. And if you're into it, you do you, which is an interesting way to think about the truth of the gospel. Um, uh, it leads to, to distortions in different ways. But one of the things is that, that, that we're supposed to be good and kind and stuff. And one of the things I've been trying to say is then why is it so hard? Why is it so hard to be peaceful? Why is it so hard to be good and kind? Why is it so hard for us to be, and, and this is moving on from sort of that benign sort of moralistic deistic statement to this other one, which is um, why is it so hard for us to be holy? to be set apart for this God, to be in the world, but not of the world. Why is that so difficult? And so in the first sermon series, or sermon in the series, I tried to say, what does it mean to know that there are forces that are bent on making that difficult for us? And, and in the Christian imagination or in the Christian scriptures or in the way that the tradition has summarized this is that those forces are generally known as the world the flesh, and the devil. That these are the three things that sort of pull us away from that. They are the enemies in which we are constantly confronting. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The second sermon in that series was actually a baptism sermon for Derek, in which, in which we, it's, it's a living parable. Uh, it's an enacted story of what we're actually talking about in this series, that in baptism, we are drafted into this, this sort of battle with God. That when we become baptized territory, that when we become those who have passed through the water, we are those who now are on the other side that see clearly that it is the world, the flesh, and the devil that are tempting to throw us off this holy path. I said, see clearly. Through the Spirit, can see clearly. I don't know if we, we see clearly all the time as much as we should, um, partially because we're incredibly self-deceptive in ourselves, too. Um, we think we're doing what we want to do. But, but through joining in baptism and through what we, we enacted with Derek that day was this joining into that battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. Last Sunday, we, we approached the devil as one of those themes. And what does it mean for demons and the demonic to be, first off in Genesis, the source of lies, the thing that creates in us that did God really say? Where God is holding out on us in some ways. And, and more importantly, where we get to define good ourselves. I mean, that's one of the classic sort of summaries of, of what happens in that early scene is that we become the definers of what is good ourselves rather than trusting in that outward definition of what is good. We talked about the way the devil shows up in the temptations of Jesus. We talked about the way in which the devil shows up, uh, in which Jesus, when he combats with the devil, uses scripture 
But he also uses wisdom, which I think is interesting because the devil uses scripture to tempt Jesus in one of those temptations. So um, often I've, I've been in churches where it's like, just memorize scripture and that will give you what you need to combat the devil. And it's like, yeah, but what, what happens when the devil quotes scripture to you? Um, then how do you interact there? Um, uh, I don't, this is a side note, but I've always, I've been thinking constantly about the, uh, the line, I think it was from St. Augustine, that, that devils can believe God and know scripture, but because they lack charity, that's why they're not angels. And charity is the old word for, for what we translate love in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. So, so they can have faith and they can have, uh, they can know who God is and they can quote some of the Bible, but because they lack the ability to do love, that what keeps them from being angels again, which I, I think is just a fascinating way to think about them, but also about ourselves, that we have the capacity to do love that might set us apart. Anyways, uh, we did the devil, and it was funny because uh, several of my friends, pastor friends, asked how it went, and I was like, I cheated because it's so hard. And they're like, well, you have to cheat when it comes to the devil. Um, because the, the world in which we live, and then they're all aware of this, uh, is that we... It's so foreign to us to think that there's that sort of demonic agency in the world that works in subtle ways. I mean, if, if we talked a little bit on that sermon about what does it mean to, to see it in, in those clear spaces of, of pagan festivals and dark movies and all this. But, but if that was all we were up against, it'd be easier to wall ourselves off and say, devil solved. Um, but it's more small than that the way it enters into our stories, and so lies into ourselves, so lies that we might be better off throwing off the shackles of our marriages or our commitments or, or this is just for me, this money, or, or these sort of lies that it makes a way and so we can sort of distort creation in that way. And they all were like, well, fair that you cheated. So I felt good. Um, uh, but I think that's one probably worth circling around back to is what does it mean that there's an active sort of personal agency force out there in the world? But we talked, I wanted to revisit some of that because we talked about two practices that sort of uh, help us combat the devil. This is the image we used, um, old woman, I think it's actually called old reading woman a book, but it is actually scripture. I think it's Luke 15 that she's open to. Um, and we talked about one of the ways in which we do combat the devil is by looking and knowing scripture and having it in this, in this picture, I think, illuminate us. I love the way it illuminates her. Now, if any of you have been to a movie, we've had two years where we can't, so think back, or a lecture hall, think back. It's, I love that this is a counter testimony to the lit up face if you're ever in a dark space today and somebody's face lights up, what's lighting their face up? How's my fantasy football team doing? Uh, need to check Twitter. Uh, this speaker lost me, so I'm gonna, it's, it's why we keep it well lit in here, so I can't see your face light up if you're doing that. Um, um, but this is a counter testimony to that, to, to that which enlights our faces truly is this meeting of God in the scriptures. And so as, as we, I was at a, a lecture in Texas where the speaker had enraptured people so much that I actually thought some of the people up in the left-hand side were a choir because they were sitting so still and, and their faces never lit up the whole time. Um, 
which I thought was interesting, but, but this is, I think, the woman's face being lit by the scripture, that being the source of light for her to be able to read from. And as we talked about this as, as leadership a couple weeks ago, one of the, the practices that came out of less, uh, this is the book that's helping me compile this sermon series, Live No Lies by John Mark Comer. If you're reading along, you'll find a lot of differences between me and it and overlaps as well. Um, uh, but uh, he encourages one of the most radical things that believers can do in their mornings is before they touch their phone or turn on any of their vices, take 15 minutes to read a psalm. Um, and so for us in our mornings to take time before we grab our phone that sets the agenda for our days, that pushes us in different ways, uh, take 15 minutes to read a psalm. And if you can't do 15, do 10. And if you can't do 10, do 5. And if you can just read it and then grab your phone instantly, at least you're starting somewhere. Um, and if you're like me, varying degrees of of temptation and struggle there. But that's one of the ways in which we can sort of bring this practice into our life. The second is uh, the, the bringing back the notion of crossing ourselves, which John Mark did not use in his book. Um, but this idea of which we talked about the calisthenics of the early church from um, the Mennonite theologian's book, uh, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church by Alan Kreider. And the idea in which we can cross ourselves as a physical reminder of who we are in God. And the way in which that played in the early church before there was a Catholic church was this way of sort of teaching believers to mark themselves at appropriate times, to sort of have this. And, and one of the ways in which I think it was Tertullian spoke about it was as a breastplate for protection in their day. And I joked that I said, after this, you can go back to accusing me of being a closet Catholic. And then I was talking to Brian and Carla this week, and they were like, is it right to left or right to left? Left to right. And I was like, I, I, I said, I think it varies. Um, and I, I should have said that it's left to right, because then you could go back to accusing me of being a closet Eastern Orthodox, um, which is a whole new thing. Uh, nobody ever accuses you of that for some reason. But uh um, it, it actually depends on which tradition you're a part of. The Eastern tradition goes left to right. The Western tradition goes right to left. But it's changed over time because the priest will go and mark the sign of the cross at portions during the service. And if you were to do the reverse of what I was doing, you would be the opposite of me. This is just nerdy stuff, sorry. But I think it's just so interesting of that. Like, So the people are doing it the, the, they've struggled to figure out the correct way to do it because the people have to do it the wrong way to follow what the priest is doing it if he's doing it the right way. Does that make sense? Yeah, so if you follow my fingers, you're actually going left to right instead of right to left. And so the tradition goes back and forth. All of this to say we're avoiding that discussion because that, I think, pulls us into whether this is a... Uh, what's the S word I'm looking Supersti uh, Superstitious practice rather than a practice by which our bodies are reminded that we belong to God in this baptism. I think if you get too hard into is it rather right or left, as I did for four minutes there, um, you end up in this superstitious place in which you're sort of losing the message of what's going on here. But I referenced this quote from C.S. Lewis that I think is important um, to think about that and other practices we use our bodies for. I've often joked that it's the charismatic church that incorporates the body fully into worship, whether that's through uh, waving flags or speaking in tongues, raising hands, and some laughter and rolling in the aisle. And then it's the high, high church that is remembered to keep the body in worship through incense and the sign of the cross and kneeling and getting up. And then there's a whole group of us in the middle that do nothing. <laughs> um, and 
and I think we lose some wisdom in that. This is, this is a, one of the screw tape letters. So if you're not familiar, this is one devil writing to another devil. And so the things come in the reverse. So they're talking about tempting this man who's recently become a Christian. The best thing where it is possible is to keep the patient, that is the man who's become a Christian, the serious, uh, is to keep the patient from the serious intention of praying altogether. When the patient is an adult recently converted to the enemy's party, enemy's party again reverses God, like your man, this is best done by encouraging him to, to remember or to think he remembers the parrot-like nature of prayers in his childhood. In reaction against that, he may be persuaded to aim at something entirely spontaneous, inward, informal, and unregularized. And what this will actually mean to a beginner will be an effort to produce in himself a vaguely devotional, devotional mood in which real concentration of will and intelligence will have no part. One of their poets, Coleridge, has, has recorded that he did uh, not pray with moving lips and bended knees, but merely composed his spirit to love and indulged a sense of supplication. That is exactly the sort of prayer we want, and it says it bears a superficial resemblance to the prayer of silence as practiced by those who are far advanced in the enemy's service. Clever and lazy patients can be taken up by it for quite some time. At least they can be persuaded that bodily position makes no difference to their prayers, for they constantly forget what you must always remember. He's telling the other demon to remember this that they are animals, and whatever their bodies do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done keeping things out. Um, but that phrase that, that they think what they do with their bodies doesn't affect their souls, that we think what we can do with our bodies is not bound up in the material of our souls, um, surely is a temptation we face today. Um, even with our minds, well, my mind's been drugged into that sort of sin, but at least my body's not in it, as if your mind has someplace else to live um, other than in your body or something like that. Um, this brings us to the flesh uh, today. So a little bit of an a overview of where we've been. Um, uh, uh, Matt Wilcox is, do people remember Matt Wilcox? Glad you're here today, Jamie, because you'll get the answer to this. Matt, when Matt Wilcox saw we were, we were doing The Flesh this week, he sent me this beautiful quote from one of our modern poets. We are at war with terrorism, racism, but most of all, we are at war at ourselves. Ray knows it. Jeremy knows it. Who's, who's it come from? Kanye West. Um, uh, this was unprompted, but it was just funny to receive back in an email is that, is that we're at war in this world, Kanye West proclaims in the song Jesus Walks, and we think we're at war with terrorism and racism, but most of all, we're at war with ourselves. This is a modern way of putting language to what does it mean to be at battle with the flesh? What does it mean to be at battle with that which in us and so this brings us to the question, what's wrong with the world? Now, this, was a, this is another quote, actually, from somebody you might want to read and revisit. Um, but this was proposed by a newspaper in London at the time, uh, early, late 1800s. Um, what's wrong with the world? And they invited a bunch of journalists to write back. Uh, the, the best reply they got was from G.K. Chesterton, which was simply, 
Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Um, what is wrong with the world? Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Most of all, we're at war with ourselves. Now, I would say that the error there is that there are three different enemies we're facing. I think largely because we've jettisoned the devil in the modern world, which I tried to reclaim as best as I could. It's easy to think the only thing we're at war at is with ourselves, but I think that's wrong. We still have the devil um, in the world. But, but Chesterton's own nature of proclaiming, what's wrong with this world? I am. And I think there's a deep truth here, because if, if you've been following around with sort of modern political discussions and what's been going on, so much is driven by resentment. And this is something that exists on both sides, but this resentment that says, I know what's wrong with the world, it's the other people. I know what's wrong with the world, it's them out there. And so for Christians to be the people who can go, I know one of the things that's wrong with the world, and it exists within my own heart and soul, that I too am captured in what's wrong with the world. Because the problem with resentment being the chief ends by which I think our political discussions seem to, to tilt towards in a lot of ways is it becomes so much easier to think the point is then to extinguish the other person, to make them a non-person or a non-being, to go into destruction mode and to begin to try and destroy that which is opposed. And I think sometimes we have a way of um, dressing up our compassion in a way that's really just resentment weaponized. Um, I care so much about the people affected by this issue, but I really don't want to know any of them. Um, it's only so that I can use it as a weapon against other peoples. So if we want to, to know our enemy, one-third of that is knowing our own souls, is that we are not as good as we often seem. Oftentimes, our pleas for, for other things, I think, are worth probing just for a moment to ask, what am I doing here? I was thinking about this earlier, and I forgot about it for a long time. Um, I think that, that what happened with COVID policies and what to do, I think, was, was a time at worth when, you're, when you wanted to resist or you wanted to fully give in and, and then go after other people who didn't go in, was a time of worth sending yourselves and asking, what's going on here? Um, am I really just chasing my own freedom? Uh, or am I really just chasing, placing burdens on other people because it somehow makes me feel better? Either way, um, I do think that that was a time in which, at least for me, it was very revealing to sit in prayer and to say, like, am I making this decision out of my own personal um, vendetta or choice towards freedom or whatever else, or am I making this decision out of some sort of true compassion or true care or true involvement in the world? Um, and I'm not sure I did that right, although I'm not sure many people did either. Um, so that was fun. Uh, um, this is the phrase that we used in the opening sermon uh, for uh, this notion of the flesh, which is in, in curvitas and say, that the soul curved in upon itself. 
It's an early church phrase. And, and the reason why I like this phrase is because what it says is that we, since the fall, have become curved in and inward looking. We, we become these ones who are able to sort of um, think about ourselves and that this is where our distortion lies. What the f- Spirit enables us to do is it turns us back inside out. One of my favorite phrases for incurvitas sensei is that it is a scoliosis of the soul. It's the soul sort of collapsing upon itself rather than being turned out in the love in which it is called to through God. That is this way of, of sort of distorting our own things. This is uh, meant to say at the beginning, if the sermon seems like it's like random observations about the flesh, Yes, probably is. Um, It was harder for me to organize this one, partially maybe due to my own flesh. Um, But I do think this is the current fascination with personality tests uh, bleeds into this one quite a bit, is that we are curved in upon ourselves. And so we take these tests to then justify the unique curving in upon ourselves that is truly ours, and therefore other people can't can't uh, infringe upon it. Now, not all personality tests are bad or used this way, but I do think it is one of the primary ways in which sometimes they can become distorted in us. I was uh, dealing with another church personality, and I'd asked them, I was trying to give them money, which is like in the church world, is like, great, you respond to that email real fast, and they never got back to me. And when I said, what took so long? And he was like, oh, Matt, what's your Enneagram number? And I was like, why does that matter? And he was like, well, mine is not bent towards email. And I was like, this makes, it's called having a job, man. Like, uh, it's called doing your responsible thing. I don't know what else to, to do to help you here. Uh, he stopped talking to me shortly after. Um, no, we're still friends. But it was just an interesting, you know, I don't think it's meant to say my responsibility is thrown off because of my Enneagram number. Um, you might want to, to step up in that. But the, and Curvitas and Satan, the way which we, we are collapsed upon ourselves the way in which we distort within and destroy ourselves. Now, the um, quote on the back of the bulletin today is from Rosario Butterfield. Um, and she, when she talks about um, human sinfulness, she was, uh, her book, The Unlikely Convert, and she has another book called, um, Kim, help me out on this, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. The Gospel Comes with a House Key, where she has the beautiful phrase, uh, it's not love the sinner, hate the, uh, their sin, it's love the sinner, hate your sin, uh, which I think is just a powerful way to think uh, about your sin. Uh, it's love the sinner and hate your own sin. But this one, she was, she was um, a practicing lesbian uh, for many years, and then uh, as she became a Christian, she transitioned away from that. But people would always say, but you were born that way. And I love her phrase back, an original sin... We are all born that way, whatever that way means. In original sin, we are all born collapsed upon ourselves, whatever that way means. That I was born that way, that I was genetically modified, or I was genetically invited to be in this way, is, is for the questions, uh, for the Christian, is at least a question worth probing beyond just mere acceptance. We're all born that way, whatever that way means. Rosario Butterfield has a, a way of, of, of portraying this battle in the soul in a way that I think says, uh, as, as, as her own story with um, same-sex attraction or relationships goes, is when she goes to church, she asks you what your that way is. 
What is your that way that you have to die to? What is your that way in which you were think you were born that way that you might need to leave as you are empowered by the Spirit? What is your that way that you think is, is so close to you that God couldn't have designed you another way, and yet it is just your human flesh seized upon whatever sort of sin it can distort? And I think this is a deep and prayerful challenge that, that is worth undertaking at some point. There's the, the Puritans, um, uh, or later than that, I think it, was, it had this, this phrase, the mortification of the flesh. What does it mean to mortify our flesh? And so often, at least for me, it seems like life can go on pretty easy in a medium in which I don't introspectively look at my soul. It was a uh, 10,000 reasons that we sang today, bless the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh my soul, uh, my soul sings out, that, that our souls we sort of push into these neutral spots because I think it's easier. Um, but self-examination, which is part, a deep part of the tradition, is one in which might expose the places in which the flesh is more operative in us than we think. Um, so it's not just born that way for other people. I'm born that way. It's whatever that way means. Now, Chris uh, read from a, a translation that we didn't prepare up on, but is helpful. Um, I don't, what did it say? It didn't say flesh. It said your sinful, the, the NIV classically, and people hated it for a long time, translated flesh sinful nature. The reason for that um, is that flesh actually is like our English words can be three different things. Uh, so flesh can be, Jesus was born of the flesh, just being in a body. There's another Greek word, soma, that is more correctly, or is also means body. But flesh oftentimes is just being in the body, having flesh. Flesh at other times in the New Testament is translated in a place that in the modern phrase we'd say almost like ethnicity. Like it's not a negative thing, it's not a positive thing, it's just that's their flesh. And then the third way um, is this way in which predominantly Paul uses it as an enemy against the Christian soul. This way of thinking about flesh. The reason why I think that it's helpful to keep that in mind, although maybe isn't the best translation, is that many Christians and many non-believers think somehow that the Christianity is anti-body. It's against us being embodied, that we just want to be freed souls to ascend to heaven and everything in the body can just burn and pass away. And so the reason why the NIV, I think, chose that interpretation was to say that this is a use of flesh that isn't simply body. It's an active force that's trying to distort ourselves and distort our understanding of ourselves in the world. And so it's not Christianity against the body. It's Christianity against the flesh, which is not one and one with the body. So depending on your translation, most of them now seem to have referred it back to the flesh, um, but at least if you're reading it that way, then remember the flesh in this instance doesn't mean your embodied soul. It means this active force that is causing us to collapse upon ourselves. Um, that this is the way in which flesh sort of works out in the world. Um, trying to be mindful of time and think of all these weird illustrations I've compiled together. Um, 
I think one of the last things we're saying, the way in which the flesh as a, as a lie and as a distorting power works in our modern world, that, that kind of lines up with the all born that way is um, Woody Allen, and this comes from John Mark Comer, he pointed this out, that Woody Allen, when he was having an interview with Walter Isaacson after it came out that he was um, uh, having an affair with his 24-year-old um, adopted daughter, through a marriage with Mia Farrow. Um, when he was in an interview with Walter Isaacson, um, and Woody Allen was about 55 at this time, Isaacson was pushing him on like, why would you do this? How does this make sense? How is this okay? And Woody Allen's response, which is memorable to all of us, I think we hear it now more and more in the modern world, is the heart wants what the heart wants. His defense in the end was the heart wants what the heart wants. Knowing the ritual context should make you think about that phrase a lot longer the next time you hear it. Um, but I do think that that's part of what we match up with in, in this modern world against the flesh, is, is that if the heart wants what the heart wants, who is somebody to interfere in that way? And this is uh, end of illustrations. Let's jump to the Bible. So often the, the, the um, New Testament passages dealing with the flesh deal with freedom, in slavery, in spirit, and flesh. That they are the, these, these ways of understanding them. Uh, and what happens is, is that we so collapse freedom in from being unencumbered by outside restrictions that what the heart wants, what the heart wants, that I should be free to be who I should be, that this comes out of my unique personality type. That in the modern world, and I say this as somebody who does some, some therapy for Christians and other people, is... Once somebody gets to that point and they believe it, you can almost do nothing to stop them. And the destructive forces that they're about to unleash, there is no check upon which you can do it. So much so that, um, uh, man, Laura ba Bazan um, uh, wrote openly about um, pursuing her divorce destroying her marriages and making this choice for her kids, who are then likely to end up in divorce too. It's not an autonomous choice that doesn't affect, just because she wanted it and she could think of no other way to remain. She openly wrote that he was a good man, that there was no problems, this, that, and the other, but she felt she needed to free herself from that. That's a big example, but I think in our own closer stuff is that we can sort of say that this is just what I need and who I am. This, this slavery and, and freedom thing is that we, we are just free to be ourselves, and it's really hard to push back on those things. Um, so we have the realm of the flesh and the realm of the spirit, and we have the realm of, of freedom um, and the realm of slavery. These things sort of go together. What I wanted to do is, is, is just quickly go back to the book of Numbers, um, this is when they are out, they've been freed from slavery in Egypt. So they were slaves in Egypt to Pharaoh. It was not great going. Um, it was being a slave. And so they finally make it out into the wilderness in this journey with God to the promised land. And as they're going, they say, it would be nice to have some meat. Um, this is sin I can understand. Um, uh, but what they say is not just that it would be nice to have some meat. What they tell themselves is the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started to wail and say, if only we had meat to eat. 
Remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We've never seen anything but this manna, this miraculous bread that comes from heaven. What I want to say is for the Christian, this is, this is the flesh. We have been baptized and rescued from the realm of the flesh. So that no longer is our true sort of interior, right? So too, the Hebrews who have passed through the waters of the Red Sea are no longer slaves in Egypt. They've been rescued from that realm of slavery. And yet we in our own addictions and angst and trials can begin to look at that time before when we were literally slaves to something, when we were caught up and consumed by something else, and have the amnesia, the lack of remembrance to say to ourselves, sure, it was terrible, but at least we had garlic. And this is, I think, the, the, the deep challenge of, of walking that holy life as the Christian, of walking as those who have been freed on the journey to the promised land in which God will restore everything and make new creation again, is to, is to not come to see our previous lives, those previous battles, those previous incarnations in which we were bound in darkness, and to say to ourselves, yeah, but there at least I had some comfort in my slavery and to move towards that promised land. And this is a deep and hard struggle for us to to move forward from that place. This is where that Reformed doctrine, the simultaneously that we are justified and we are sinner, comes into play. That we are simultaneously those justified to God and still those who long for garlic in our previous states. We forget how bad it was and press forward into something else. And so this is is the way in which that goes. Now, Romans and Galatians, Romans 8, Galatians 5, are two places where the freedom, uh, this battle between the spirit and flesh, freedom and slavery play out and how we sort of look at these things. Um, And and Paul is is often saying, you are free, but what are you going to use your freedom towards? You have been released, but use your freedom towards good rather than backwards to where you came. That what Christ has done has really freed us, that we really have been brought out of that slavery, and it's now for us to use that newfound capacity for something else, to move into another spot. And so in what Chris read, or in in, uh, Galatians 5, uh, we are called to sort of throw off the flesh and live into this new realm, which is the realm of the spirit, in which we are sort of empowered, or where we, were, we are empowered, to live as God would have us live, not bound by that previous slavery, which was the flesh. And that's, that's Paul's understanding of what flesh was. You were not free in that state. You were bound in that state. What you have been received into Christ, you've been truly set free. If the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Um, to then pursue love and to have yourself turned inside out, which is uh, that, that great phrase from Encuritas uh, and Say, that we are being turned back out of ourselves. Um, this brings us 
I think, to the end of the sermon, uh, or not to the end of the sermon, the application. As I said last week, if I only uh, tell you what the world, the flesh, and the devil well, and give us no tools to combat the world, the flesh, and the devil, then I have failed greatly, um, because then knowing your enemy is not winning against your enemy. Um, It's not being able to go battle against your enemy. Uh, The two for this week, um, I'm trying to think. Yeah, we'll just do the two for this week. There's a, I'll send out an interesting uh, point from the Confessions where Augustine is talking about how habit becomes sin in a way that we've re-embraced the power of habit in the modern world if you follow all these productivity advice blogs, habit, habit, habit. And, um, and Augustine was doing that in the fourth century on how we hab- habituate ourselves towards sinfulness, is that it starts with one action and then we do this, and he says we put these links together and then make a chain which becomes our own slavery each time we commit these things. And I think it's a, a beautiful passage that sort of shows how we sort of, it's not the one act that, that binds us in. It's the continued acting and pursuing and, and seeking after our flesh that makes habit, that makes addiction, that makes cycle, that makes this. And so then, then the, the positive way out of that is making... Uh, well, the positive way out of that first is the work of God. Um, in Ephesians, it says, but God in his great love for us, that's what Emily read during the service, that God is the one who frees us. Um, but then the positive way out of that too is then habituating ourselves to the good things which God has done us, done for us. And I realized that this slide, people are like, those are the good things, confession and fasting. Yes, they are. Um, um, because they are the ways in which we find freedom, I think, from the flesh. The first is confession. Confession is one of our marks here at Defiance Church, and we, in which we confess what God has done for us. And this is, I, I think about this often, the image for it is a sound wave, is, is reverberation, that we find ourselves reverberating with what's true about us, what God has placed in our hearts, that we move into that space. And confession um, is this place in which we can examine our flesh, the way I'm born that way, whatever that way is, and then be honest about it and find freedom in God. There's this notion in which we want to hide these things in darkness, the challenge for that. But being able to confess it, and what we say in our prayer of confession here often is that God who is faithful and just will forgive our sin. By keeping the poison within, we only get sicker and sicker. But confession is this way in which we expose that poison to the light, that we speak it out. Uh, We name the disorder within ourselves. The second being fasting. Fasting, I often say, is the body's form of prayer, that when you're fasting from something, that longing can show itself. Uh, And the the grumbles within your tummy are are your body praying for whatever it is. Uh, Fasting from food is a classical one. I think that there are many ways in which we can fast in the modern world that are more like abstinence, but I think they create better patterns for us to fast from the phone first thing in the morning, to fast um, from uh, any, if you do meatless Mondays to sort of, to, to sort of bring back this notion of, of restricting ourselves in some ways. And the reason why I think fasting is so interesting is that there are no, this is, this is uh, funny, I learned this, I can't remember from where, there are no vegan wolves. Um, isn't it, there are no vegan wolves? They, they, I think that's funny. They never like wake up one day and say, you know what, I've had enough of this meat eating. I've committed myself to a life of veganism. Um, w- w- think about it for a second. I mean, I, 
that we have the ability to resist, that we can say, I'm not going to have that thing. This truly separates us from the animals in so many ways. There's, there's no animal that walks, or there aren't animals that say, you know what, I'll save that for tomorrow. Um, wolves, bears, a lot of the big carnivores will eat until they're almost dead if there's food out because they can't say no. Our word for freedom as Christians and as humans is the ability to say no. It's everything else that says, I will go propagate, I will go eat, I will go consume, I will just keep going because that's the way that their nature is built. We're one of the only creatures, if probably the only creature, that can say, no, I've had enough. And so our two practices for this week going forward is to, is to practice confession, um, bring that habit into your life. We do it here at church. You can memorize. We, the prayer of confession we use changes seasonally, but it's always in the same form. Um, and, and practice fasting. Practice that saying no. Um, we'll end with the baptism liturgy that we ended with every Sunday so far, which is let us receive the sign of the cross as a token of our life in Christ, in which we shall not be ashamed to confess the faith of Christ crucified, to fight bravely under his banner against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to continue as his faithful servant and serve him in the name, in the end of your days. Let us say together, Amen.